listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Luke 21, verse 1. I would love it if you would follow along and not take my word for it. Let's take our Father's word for it as we look at what Jesus taught about the end times. What did Jesus say about the last days? Luke 21, beginning in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. See, we don't see Jesus mincing words. We see Jesus talking openly about money and helping the people understand that there's a direct correlation between their worship and adoration of God and stinginess. Verse 5, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. But I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance or punishment to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity, in anxiety, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will drop dead after losing their breath. People will faint with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Again, the title that Jesus most frequently used in reference to himself, Son of Man. So it's saying here, then you will see me coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them the parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, to stand before Jesus. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. What I'd like us to do is to focus on verses 29 to 38 as we look at what Jesus was teaching, what Jesus continues to teach in this day and age about what the world will be like before he returns, and more importantly, how as a disciple to live in light of what Jesus teaches. How does a disciple live in light of what Jesus teaches? Look at verse 29. He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Now, Jesus is speaking about not only the fig tree. Luke is recording it as Jesus saying, not just the fig tree, but also all the trees. And it's good that he did that because we could easily get off on a rabbit trail because the fig tree in the Old Testament is often associated exclusively, symbolically, with the nation of Israel. And so what Jesus is doing here is helping the disciples move beyond a fixation and a focus just on the nation of Israel. This is something that is very practical. Imagine Jesus being practical in what he's teaching. He's saying, look at a fig tree, and for that matter, look at all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Imagine those words being emphasized. Will not, will not. My words will not pass away. The heavens and the earth will pass away. Look at Revelation 21 when you have some time. 
There is a new heavens and a new earth coming in which righteousness will reign, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. And Jesus says the current heavens, the current earth, they're passing away. However, by contrast, my words will not pass away. So what Jesus is saying here, the emphasis of this passage is the end will come. You can be assured of that. My words are more permanent than the heavens and the earth upon which we now live, upon which the disciples then lived. And so Jesus wants the disciple to build his or her life upon the words that he's uttering, the teachings that he's been giving. He wants you and he wants me, he wants us to build our lives upon and around the teachings that he provided. And it's still practical and pertinent and relevant today. And the analogy that he's giving, you don't have to know anything about farming. You don't have to know anything about agriculture. It's obvious. We have four seasons here in Pennsylvania, don't we? They have seasons in Israel. And depending on where you are in different parts of the world, the seasons can be more pronounced. If you live in Florida, you wish you did now because of all of the snow. We know that each one of the seasons has particular characteristics that help us understand that the season that was is now over and now we're in a new season. The snow reminds us of that. When the snow eventually thaws, it will remind us of spring and then spring will get hotter and hotter until we know that summer is here and then back to fall and back to winter and there are these cycles and these seasons. And Jesus talks about not just the fig tree, but also all trees. And I think he did that intentionally because the fig tree in the Old Testament pertains to especially the nation of Israel. So Luke wants to record what Jesus said with absolute clarity so that the teaching of Jesus here is not specifically just zeroing in on the nation of Israel. He doesn't want the audience to get sidetracked. What Jesus is teaching here, what Luke is recording, is that you will be able to know when the end of the end is upon us. In the same way that you know through the changing of the seasons that the season is changing, you will be able to know with absolute clarity that the end of the end is upon us. And the end of the end is really detailed, I think, pretty clearly in verses 25 through 28. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. I'm going to read it with the intention that I believe makes the most sense here. I'm going to emphasize things that I think will help drive home this point. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in anxiety or perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's a different situation than what we read in verse nine of Luke 21. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. That's the beginning of the end. And Jesus says, 
In verse 10, he said to them, nation will rise against nation or ethnic group against ethnic group, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, you will be persecuted. So it seems like Jesus is helping us understand, helping us discern a progression as we march toward the end of all things, that there really is a culmination. There really is momentum. Things get increasingly bad, increasingly worse, And the crescendo seems to be given in verses 25 to 28 with signs in sun and moon and stars. And we talked about that along with the stress of nations and the idea of people dropping dead, losing their breath. It's not something like the four blood moons that just occurred recently. It's something very dramatic, unmistakable. And Jesus says, hey, just like the changing of the seasons, you're not going to be able to mistake when the end of the end is upon us. When these things happen, at that point, you are to look up because your redemption is drawing near. In the same way that a fig tree buds, the leaves come out in the springtime, you know that it won't be too long until that fig tree begins to produce fruit. Same thing with an apple tree or a peach tree, okay? Jesus says that the beginning of the end and the end of the end will be unmistakable. Now, much has been made about this word that's used in verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The emphasis in verse 33 is my words will not pass away. There is a greater certainty of the fulfillment of what Jesus has just said will happen than there is about the ongoing Existence of the current heavens and earth. My words will not pass away. What I just told you, disciple, will take place, will indeed take place. The particular word that is often debated is the word that's in verse 32, the word generation. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now there are four possible most prevalent interpretations of that word generation. The first one, which I think is not likely, is the most obvious sense of that word, the word that we use, the way we use that word, which is a generation, you know, about 60 or 70 years long, that type of a generation. Some believe that this actually means the same thing that it would mean in the English sense, that Jesus was speaking about the generation who heard what he taught, those who were alive during the time he taught this in the 30s. I don't mean the 1930s. I mean like 30 AD, those 30s, because that's when Jesus would have provided this teaching. And some would say, well, this is the generation that Jesus is speaking about. So maybe Jesus is saying, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. And then Luke, his earliest, the earliest evidence that we have for the writing of Luke's gospel is in the 60s, not the 1960s, AD 60s. 
So it's probably not Jesus referring to the generation that was alive when he said these things or the generation that would have continued to be alive when Luke wrote down the things that Jesus said in the 60s. And so for those of you who think that it was that generation, those of you who like Roger Daltrey where he sung about my generation, it's probably not that generation. Luke would have written this at a time when that generation would have come and gone. So it's most likely not the interpretation that is correct here. Jesus was most likely not trying to imply that all of these things are going to take place. All of this is going to be fulfilled in the generation that hears my words and hears what I'm saying. So that idea of generation needs to fade away. It's probably not the correct interpretation. Well, the second interpretation could be a reference to the generation of the Jews. The Jewish people will not fade away. They will not go away until all these things take place. But that's probably not a correct interpretation either because that word generation is not used in an ethnic sense about the Jewish people and other passages of the Bible. So that's probably not what it's a reference to either because the focus is not so much on the Jewish people here as much as the fulfillment of end times. So number three and number four that I'm going to lay out for you here are probably the most likely. You can pick which one you like. Good people disagree, okay? Now, by good people, I mean as good as it gets, humanly speaking, because none of us is good. But good people can disagree about which one of these could be the correct interpretation. The first one could be here when it says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. It could be Jesus talking about the evil generation of humanity. In particular, a kind of person who's characterized by being evil. Now, if we look at Luke chapter 11, verse 29, here's a perfect example of how this is used. In, it's used in Matthew, it's used in Luke consistently. In Luke eleven twenty nine, here's an example of how that word generation is used by Jesus. When the crowds were increasing... He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. See how he uses it there? This generation is an evil generation. So it could be that what Jesus is saying is that a particular kind of person characterized by wickedness, characterized by evil, are going to get their just desserts. Nobody is going to escape the eventual vengeance of God. No one who is evil, no one who rejects my teaching and rejects my identity and rejects my lordship is going to escape the inevitable judgment that's coming. Heaven and earth will pass away, but I will get my vengeance, okay? This particular generation, this particular kind of person, an evil person, a wicked person, kind of person who's not interested in me and in my teachings and giving their life over to me, that kind of a person will not escape the eventual reality of all of my words coming true and the vengeance and judgment that will be theirs. So that's a possible interpretation. And you might like that. You might say, yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm going to blog about that later today. 
I'm going to put that on Facebook later today. And I'm going to be very tactful by not bashing the people who hold the first two views, right? You're going to be very careful when you're on Facebook because once it's out there, you're out there, right? Why are you not looking at me like you understand what I'm saying? Are you posting things on Facebook that you wish you hadn't posted? And the fourth possible interpretation of verse 32 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Could mean the generation that is alive when verses 25, 26, and 27 unfold. The generation that is alive when the beginning of the end starts to happen. We'll see the end of the end. In other words, the generation that is alive when there are signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, the generation that sees that, the generation that's alive, the generation that sees people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world, the generation that sees the powers of the heavens shaken, the generation that sees all of that will see the end as well. And so that seems to make the most sense to me, might make the most sense to you. The idea here is that even though these other things that precede the beginning of the end or the end of the end might take years, the wars and the rumors of war, the persecutions, the great earthquakes, the pestilences, the famines, all of these other things, they're the beginning of the earth pangs. Remember, as Jesus says in verse nine, but the end will not be at once. See, that stuff might take quite a while, but when you see the signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the nations quaking and shaking with perplexity and anxiety and screaming in fear out of seeing things they've never seen before. If you're part of that generation, things will happen in a relatively fast time. That particular generation that sees the beginning of the end will see the end of the end, which is actually the beginning of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And that seems to make the most sense to me, might make sense to you, but we can love and serve and follow Jesus whether or not we disagree about that, can't we? Because the issue in this passage is not for us to get out our commentaries and get out our Greek manuscripts and get out our computer and to read all the research on it so that we figure out the timing and the circumstances. The idea behind all of this is to help you and me not be caught off guard so that the day when Jesus returns catches us in a position where it falls upon us suddenly like a trap. The idea behind this passage is that the life of a disciple is to be characterized by constant readiness and constantly being about the father's business, constantly being about the son's business. So whether we're in the beginning of the last days or the middle of the last days or the end of the last days, it does not matter. Because a disciple will live for Jesus regardless of the timing, regardless of the circumstances. What Jesus is trying to help you understand, what he's trying to help me understand, what he is trying to help us understand is that the lifestyle of a disciple is not to be marked by fear and trembling. It is to be marked by faith and faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness. And it is not possible 
to divorce faith and faithfulness from right, righteous, ready living. Right, righteous, ready living. That's the way a disciple lives. So I don't want to fixate on the wrong thing here and miss the kernel that Jesus is trying to help us really embrace. I want you and I want me, I want us to really understand what Jesus wants us to walk away with. Listen, the end of the world will one day come. The heavens and the earth will dissolve, the scriptures say. They'll be consumed with fire and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness where Jesus Christ himself reigns with those who have accepted him as Savior and God. So put that in your back pocket. Understand that everything Jesus said would take place will indeed take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There is no escaping what's coming upon the whole world. And you as a disciple, we as disciples, are to be obviously, blatantly living in a fundamentally different way than the rest of the world. This is what Jesus is leading us up to when we get to verse 34. But watch yourselves. He's saying this to the disciples and the non-disciples. He's saying this to the disciples and the dabblers. He's saying this to everyone. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Now, some people have a drinking problem. You know that if that resonates with you. When you see that phrase that's used there, dissipation and drunkenness, some of you are recovering alcoholics, some of you are on the fringe, some of you know that it's dangerous to take a drink, it's dangerous to be around people who drink, and you just want to keep as far away from that as possible. There are many people who have drinking problems. And there are many people who will have drinking problems when Jesus returns because they'll be distracted by things that grip their hearts, grip their souls, grip their lives, that should not grip them. But you know, there are also many people who do not have a drinking problem. Many people do not have a drinking problem. But that doesn't get any of us off the hook. Because Jesus is not just focusing on wayward living here. It's not just dissipation and drunkenness. It's not just carousing and being engaged in behavior that is the byproduct and the overflow of drinking something that you shouldn't be drinking or having too much of something, an alcoholic beverage, or it could be a little bit of weed. If you're in the state of Washington, you can do that legally. If you're in Colorado, you could do that. Just because it's permissible doesn't make it beneficial. But here's the thing that really puts us all in that same boat rowing in the same direction. And if Jesus was talking about alcohol, no problem. If Jesus was talking about weed, no problem. If Jesus was talking about any of that stuff that is mind-altering, no problem. Life-altering accordingly, no problem. But here's the thing where I've got to have a wrestling match with Jesus, and you do too. 
Watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down. Imagine a millstone wrapped around your heart, making it difficult for you to walk the walk. Easy to talk the talk. Much more difficult to walk the walk. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life. That's the stinger right there. The cares of life. Because it's the cares of life that could set us up for that day to come suddenly like a trap. This is not the first time that Jesus has talked about the cares of life. Look with me at Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus has talked about the parable of the sower. And they come to him and they say, Lord, what's the interpretation of this parable? You know, where Jesus talks about a sower came to sow seed and he threw out this seed. And there are four different responses to the seed. So they come to him and they say, hey, what does this actually mean? And in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, here's the interpretation. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time, in a time of testing or difficulty, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The cares of this life are choking off the fruitfulness in many to such a degree that that day when Jesus returns will be characterized not as a glorious day of excitement and a thrill that our redemption is finally upon us. The cares of this world, the cares of this life, have distracted so many to such a degree that that day will be characterized instead as coming suddenly like a trap. And what Jesus was saying to the disciples and the dabblers in his day, so he says to you and me today, watch yourself. Remember, heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will never pass away. Watch yourself. Be a good steward of your own life. Be a good steward of the word of God. Don't take for granted the teachings of Jesus. Do not assume that being able to stand before the Son of Man will be an easy, breezy event. World events before the return of Jesus Christ will be so difficult, so hard, so cataclysmic, so distracting, so fearful that if you're not careful, if I am not careful, yes, I'm actually saying this. If we're not about watching our own lives, that day, instead of being a glorious day, will be one that will catch us off guard, close in on us suddenly like a trap. 
And for no other reason than the cares of this life. Jesus says repeatedly, the cares of this life are one of your greatest enemies. The cares of this life are tremendous, foreboding, effective enemy against the disciple. They are so effective, so deceitful, so disarming that if you're not watching carefully, if we are not watching carefully, that day that should be a glorious, amazing spectacle to see Jesus return on the clouds the same way he went up will instead be a day of fear and trepidation. We will be caught off guard. It'll be a snare and a snag. Jesus is telling us, watch your life. Watch yourself. Do not assume that you will be able to do what most will not be able to do. Most people will not be able to stand before Jesus. Look with me. Watch yourselves, verse 34, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that they come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. You know, every single person on the earth will one day stand before Jesus, the Son of Man. The follower of Jesus Christ will stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, what's known as the Bema seat. This idea of standing before a judge in a court of law, the judge sits on the Bema. It's known in the original language. It's known in the day in which Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. And he likens the believer standing before a judge in his trial and the judge declaring a verdict. And it is for the believer, not a judgment of salvation, because you're already saved. You're sanctified. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, not some sin. That's not great news, that God so loved the world that he forgave almost all of your sins, or all of your sins except one. The judgment seat is a judgment of rewards for the believer. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And this is similar to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he talks about the quality of each man's work will be judged. If what he's built survives, he himself will be saved although as one escaping through the flames. So the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of rewards for the believer. So you need to take seriously the idea of your standing before the Son of Man in that judgment of rewards. But the judgment seat of Christ is distinct. It's different from what we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 11, the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is reserved and preserved for those 
who are not believers in Jesus Christ. Look with me at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. We understand the context here. This is Jesus, the son of man, who's seated on that throne. And I saw the dead, great and small, meaning famous and not so famous, powerful and not so powerful, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And there are people today who don't believe that there is an eternity of punishment for those who have rejected Jesus Christ as Savior and God and Master of their lives. I understand that when you don't read the Bible. I understand how we could come to that conclusion if we want to sanitize the teachings of the Bible. But if we want to take all of the teachings of the Bible with equal weight, if we want to let the Bible interpret itself there is this idea of an eternal judgment. And if that makes you uncomfortable, if it makes somebody else uncomfortable that you know, well, good, you understand the gospel. You don't have to go there. Nobody has to go there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only uniquely brought forth one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. Which sin? Every single one of them. You mean that sin? Yes, even that one. And what Jesus is saying here in Luke 21 is that everybody will appear before the Son of Man. And everybody needs to take seriously, every single one of us needs to take seriously this idea of one day appearing before the Son of Man. The believer in a judgment of rewards, getting the rewards that we deserve because of being faithful, losing the rewards we would otherwise have had because of our unfaithfulness, and the unbeliever, the ones who have rejected Jesus in this life, going into an eternity, getting what they wanted forever. If you want nothing to do with Jesus in this life, you will have that wish granted permanently and in eternity away from him. And so in Luke 21, when Jesus says these words, we need to take them to heart. We need to be careful that we don't explain away the words of Jesus. Many of us in the evangelical community have cheapened what undeserved favor is, what undeserved favor is, grace of God. We're kind of floating through life with a lackadaisical attitude that betrays the kind of a lifestyle that a believer should have. When Jesus says, watch yourselves, he's speaking to you and me. When Jesus says these words, he's speaking to you and me. Watch out for dissipation. Watch out for drunkenness. Watch out for the cares of this life. Because if the cares of this life get the upper hand on you, that day when I return, that should be and will be a glorious day, will be one that catches you off guard like a trap. That's not a good thing. 
And when Jesus says these words, he's speaking to you and me, not just the people in his day. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times. That's supposed to be characteristic of your life and mine. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. When was the last time you prayed that God would give you strength to stay awake and escape all of these things? Now listen, I know that we have pre-trib, mid-trib views. I know that many of us, most of us, believe in the rapture, the taking away of the church before the end of the end comes. I know all of that. But we don't hear Jesus giving excuses here while he's saying these words, do we? Why is it that we are using those excuses in our own life when it comes to being faithful and ready for the return of Jesus and living righteously. I'm not saying in a self-righteous way. I'm talking about living righteously in a way that rightly honors Jesus. Jesus says that that time immediately before his return will be so bad that you need to pray. You need to pray that you're able to stand before Jesus whether you're a disciple or a dabbler. If you're a dabbler, hopefully by this time you're convinced that you want to move over to the other side of the fence and become a disciple. How is it that a disciple can be ready? How is it that you can live the kind of a life that I can live the kind of a life that instead of coming upon us suddenly like a trap, we can actually look up and be excited and be encouraged and thrilled at seeing Jesus return. Even if we don't be, even if we're not part of that generation that actually gets to behold that with our own eyes at that particular time, how can we live such a life so that regardless of the timing and the circumstances, we're ready, we're living righteously, and we're awake instead of sleeping? Number one, here's something practical that you can do. Take the next seven days of your life and make sure that you're reading the Bible and putting it into action. I'm afraid that in the evangelical community, we've been reading the Bible and studying the Bible and listening to the Bible and getting so much Bible, we've created a lot of little Pharisees and a lot of little Sadducees and a lot of little hearers of the word, but not many doers of the word. What needs to happen in your life and mine is a commitment to the word of God that puts it into practice. And if you look at the course of your whole life, you might be overwhelmed. You might say, well, how do I live in a constant state of readiness for Jesus? All you need to do is do it for the next seven days. And on the eighth day, recommit yourself to another seven days. And if you miss a day, don't beat yourself up. Anybody ever beat themselves up for making a promise to God and then not fulfilling that promise and feeling guilty about it? Well, if you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 8, he's faithful and just to forgive us of sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a commitment to the Bible. It's a commitment to Jesus. It's not a commitment to a Bible reading plan. It's a commitment to a way of life, a lifestyle where we're putting the word of God into action. All you need to do, all I need to do is commit ourselves to seven days of reading the Bible, setting apart some time and saying, God, whatever it is that I read, I'm going to put it into action. And on the eighth day, recommit yourself for another seven days. Is there anybody here who can't do that? Of course not. 
How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Just do it for seven days, and on the eighth day, recommit yourself to doing it for another seven days. And before you know it, as the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years, you'll be somebody who's beginning to live with a constant state of readiness for Jesus. That day won't close in on you suddenly like a trap. You'll be able to look up whether you see that day literally or whether you don't. Eventually, Jesus is coming back. And eventually, whether it's by the judgment seat of Christ or whether it's by the white throne judgment, everybody's going to appear before the Son of Man. That's what Jesus says. So reading the Bible and putting it into action and being surrendered to God, being a person who's led by the Holy Spirit as you read the Bible and put it into action is going to help you and me live in a constant state of readiness. Secondly, before we focus on what's happening in the nation, we need to focus on what's happening in our families. Husbands, you need to repent and start loving your wives the way you're supposed to be loving your wife, as Christ loved the church. And wives, we need to repent and love our husbands and follow the lead of our husbands as the church follows the lead of Jesus. Both husbands and wives need to love their children, not exasperate their children, and children need to love their parents and submit to their parents as the spiritual leaders and the people that God has given over their life with wisdom. Now, now, yes, you can find abusive parents anywhere, and you can find an abusive husband and an abusive wife anywhere. I'm not talking about that. Let's have some common sense here. The only thing about common sense is nothing common about it anymore. For most instances, these principles apply. Now, can, can we agree on that? Of course we can. Some people are so end times minded, they're no family good. They're of no use to their family, no use to their spouse, no use to their children. Listen, the way to love God is to love your family, love your spouse, love your children, love your parents. So you can read the Bible every day, put it into action. You can be committed to your spouse, be committed to your children, be committed to your family, be committed to your mother and father, be committed to your brother, your sister, whoever it might be. Be committed to your family. Family is the first institution created by God. Family is important. Number three, you can start paying attention to world events and what's happening. Everybody thought somebody was doing something, so nobody did anything. A Christian who's not concerned about what's happening in America, if you're an American and you're living in the United States of America, even if you're not an American, but you're a Christian and you call the United States your home, you better be concerned about what's happening in the nation. Just don't be so concerned about what's happening in the nation that you neglect your family. That can be an escape clause that God never intended it to be. Read the news, pay attention to what's happening so that 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 are a reality in your life, that you're praying for the king. And if we don't start praying for the king, we might just end up with a king. Pray for those who are in authority. Understand that God wants all people everywhere to come to a knowledge of himself, wants people everywhere to come to an understanding that there's one God, one Savior, one mediator between God the Father and man, the man Christ Jesus. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 for yourself and you will see it. So pay attention to what's happening in world events. Don't divorce yourself. Stop being apathetic. Pay attention. Watch yourself. Life is happening right now. If you're not paying attention to what's happening and not engaged, 
situation and what's happening and not praying about what's happening, remember, ignore your freedoms and they will go away. Ignore your freedoms and they will go away. So a Christian needs to be a citizen who is engaged in what's happening in whatever nation you're living in, praying for the will of God and doing all we can do as salt and light to fulfill the will of God. Remember this, don't forget this. In the Old Testament, when a nation went rogue, God raised up the prophet. In New Testament days, when a nation goes rogue, God raises up the church. The church is God's solution to speak to the problems of the day. And we've divorced ourselves from being the most significant factor of influence that God Almighty has anointed and appointed us for such a time as this. If the church doesn't speak to the issues of the day, then who's going to speak to those issues? So pay attention to what's happening. Understand that you're the solution. I'm the solution. The church is the solution. Finally, the fourth thing that you can do to be watchful and ready living righteously is to take it upon yourself to lead other people to the feet of Jesus. You might not be an evangelist, but every single Christ follower is called to be involved in evangelism. You might say to yourself, I'm not Billy Graham. No, you're not, neither am I. However, Billy Graham's not even mentioned in the Bible. Every single one of us, the Great Commission is, you will be my witnesses. You've got a story to tell. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been cleansed by the blood, washed by the blood, forgiven of all of your sins. There's peop- there are people in your life who need that same forgiveness. There are people in your life who want that same forgiveness. There are people in, their li- in your life who feel like they're unworthy. They could never have that kind of forgiveness. And some of us, especially as we get older, we realize that that's the exact same position that every single one of us was in. Take it upon yourself to be God's mouthpiece, God's spokesperson to invite people to your church, whatever church you go to. And if you're not happy with the church you're in, by all means, repent of grumbling, stop grumbling, and go find a church you're excited about. Go find a church that's preaching and teaching the word of God. Stop complaining about the church that you're in. People might rejoice when you leave, for all we know. I don't know. Life is short. Jesus is real. What he said is going to come down to being reality one day. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. You can tell somebody all throughout the course of the week about the greatest somebody who ever was and ever is, and his name is Jesus. So read your Bible, put it into action. Make your family the priority that in most instances it hasn't been the priority it needs to be. Pay attention to what's happening in your neighborhood and the nation. Get engaged, pray, be involved, be salt and light, and take it upon yourself to be the person that God has anointed and appointed to be his spokesperson, to be a witness, to lead other people to the feet of Jesus. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app 
or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Thank you.